Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and today we have Dr. Scott Stevenson back on the show. Uh, it's been too long, Scott. How are you doing? How long has it been? Was it with Mike Isertel? Was that the last time? That probably was, yeah. So this okay. will be the fourth time you've been, well, actually, I think it'll be the fifth episode, but the fourth time I think we've spoken. Okay. Okay. Oh, we must have broken one up into two since it was yeah. so long. All right. I think it was the first one. <laughs> that, that sounds like something that we would have done. Yep. How yeah, was everything? Was You've, good. Did you just compete? Or no, I've you done thought? A few, I've done yeah. a few shows. Yeah. I just sort of like, I like to kind of dabble with things. So I did, actually did five shows, um, two national level, and then just through a three local. And I was testing out different peak week things. And then I, I mean, I obviously I don't really talk about the shows, but I just I gather the information. Yeah. And um and then uh I was the last thing I was thinking about doing was I was I, I've got I got in such a good rhythm with dieting and it's relatively easy for me because I, I I don't see it as suffering I just see it as something I've chosen to kind of do and I've got lots of projects to work on, which is how I do my quote unquote cardio I increase my meat by staying active around the house. Right. So. I had a, a nice groove going. I'm like, you know, I could, I could, I could probably drop even more weight. And I started going down. Like, maybe what happened? What happened if I tried to make classic physique? And you know, I went down. I got about seven pounds below where I normally would be on stage. I was getting. I mean, the, I'm pretty lean. I posted a video on Instagram a couple of days ago, I think. And I like, I was just not going any further. I mean, I, I could, like, if I needed to, if like. You know, the world was going to end if I didn't get my weight down to the, the cutoff, but I just sensed I was just getting too, just losing too much. My, um, my structure just isn't meant to look good at that, at that level. Yeah. So, I mean, I haven't been, uh, I'm trying to think, I, like I'd have to weigh in at 190. I haven't been a light heavyweight with 198 uh, since like. And that was always forcing myself down. And that was for like 18 years or something like that. I had to like, you know, literally like kind of time, that was timing the water drop, like to drop seven or eight pounds to make, make weight and then fill back up. So anyway, so that's, so that's kind of what I've been up to bodybuilding wise. I guess you would have had so. to have sacrificed probably some muscle tissue to have actually got into that. Yeah. Category. Yeah. A lot. I mean, I already have, you know, right. and I, I, you can see it. I could see it sometimes like during the, during the day, of course you get pumped up, you look good and you know, you dry it out in the morning in the gym, but yeah, it would have been pretty visible in the, and ironically, when I was thinking about that, I was corresponding with someone in email who had, I asked him how his last show went, he's another coach. And he, he basically told me, um, he was trying to make in his case, middleweight and he pushed down for it and he, and he looked great. And then he tried to fill up and all he did was just get watery. Just didn't work. Uh. And he's a pretty sharp guy. And it was one of those things for him. <clears throat> this is the other issue is I am really big on practicing the peak week whenever possible. So, and I would do that when I, I remember this is how I got so many practice runs in personally doing my peak week strategy when I was trying to diet down to make heavy or light heavy, because I mean, literally I would, I would, you know, let's say I'm six weeks out and I'm weighing 210. And I would run through my, and I'm in pretty good shape by that time, or let's say 208, and I and run my peak week protocol. And I knew that I would drop down at the time of weigh-ins, the Friday before the show, six pounds. I'm like, okay, so I need to be 204 at this time point, 
because that's the six pounds that I know right. I can drop. And literally, I, there were times when I practiced that, I think, you know, four or five, six times even over the course of a, of a prep. So, um, and it was getting, it was starting to get like, kind of like, this is sort of crazy to just kind of hold this because the next show would be like nationals, which is two months. So I'm going back up with weight now, you know, right. and I don't know if that would even, even work, but it would have been a matter of like, that would have been so, I had the sense such a diabolically rigorous water drop, even with the way I do it. And I don't use any pharmaceutical diuretics. It just would have been like, it's one of those, like sometimes like just doing one show just takes the wind out of your sails. So, and then if that, if that peak week didn't work, maybe it worked perfectly like practice run, but then I might've been just so fucked up yeah. because I was so away from where my body would rather be size wise that I wouldn't be able to repeat things as well. It would be so tough because the traveling obviously is another variable that you, it's hard to replicate to some degree. Yeah, unless you're like five days in advance or something. I always think that with, it's, it's, it's important to tell clients when you're practicing a peak week that you can't just now use that as a carbon copy because although you're practicing it, it's never perfect compared to a show. It's just the conditions always slightly modify and yeah. change, which There's, is you, tough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can get a lot of it, but you still have to be paying attention. Yeah. Um, yeah. So just that, that, that was going to be, it's just so, so tough getting down that low. So I've spoken uh, to coaches before who are where they've kind of suggested that if you do do, kind of maybe a more extreme kind of uh, peaking protocol where you might deplete and then like carb load rather than some other like just coasting in type of peaks that you it's hard to kind of get the same response from the body because the body's kind of like okay you've you kind of you used that you've got the kind of deplete and load and you've got that great look now to replicate that in the near future it's like you've kind of used the body's kind of mechanisms there kind of and it won't respond the same way is that something you've experienced yeah, that's really what I was just just getting at is when when you when it becomes such a diabolically difficult process to to peak and to like to really to you know to let's say deplete all the way throughout the week to make the weigh in in the most dried out sort of depleted space and then let's say you weigh in at four o'clock if it's, things are lucky on a Friday before a Saturday show and then fill back up that you kind of like um, it it chips away at your physical reserves in some way shape yeah. or form. And so what, and what I think may be involved there, the thing that's nice about the way I do peak week is that I can almost always, and I always think this sounds like some sort of a, um, uh, like an infomercial, but you, I can always count on there being sort of a somewhat of a quantum leap forward in terms of conditioning, the way I do things. Cause there is a three or four, three day period where you're not eating any carbs and you're just doing regular training, but you end up, um, a lot of people end up just eating a little bit of a deficit. Your insulin sensitivity goes really, really high. And just the, the peak week just always, because of the way things are put together, ends up getting people leaner. So if you do something like that, let's say you like you really force, you take a whole week, two weeks out, and, and really push yourself to try to, let's say your cutoff's 190s, and that particular time you make 192, thinking I can lose two more pounds. You, you, you literally have probably brought yourself even further from your set point or your settling point terms of body fat and everything else now, so now you're like the, the tension between where you are body composition wise and where your body wants to be and what's going on in, in just literally in the stress in your mind I mean it, it's you know when people know probably most of your listeners know this there there'll be times when 
you know those days when your, your, your thoughts are constantly distracted by the desire to eat. Like you're constantly thinking like, God, I wish I could eat something. And you're like, you can't focus on anything. Well, you, you do a, a really tough peak week like that practice run and you drop things down and maybe lose a little muscle and lose a little fat. Then, then you're, then really you're in a, you're in this sort of almost emergency state for the next two weeks. And your body's just not going to be able to push even further. Like literally, you've you've already set you set yourself further away. So you you would have to sort of eat back up a little bit. But then, if you didn't make the weight the two weeks out, then you still are going to have to keep dieting in order to get down to where you can reach the target goal of one ninety or whatever your your weigh-in weight is. So it's a you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. If it's a really really hard deal. So and then it gets dangerous when people start messing with diuretics. You know, right. and like they double the diuretics up and that's when people get like dead sometimes, unfortunately. So. Yeah. You don't want to be doing that. That's no, really scary. And, I've heard of awful stories. Yeah. And I, I would never do diuretics. It's just, they just, no, I mean, I, I can drop so much water the way I do things. I don't even know. I mean, I, I'm sure if I like, you know, just injected Lasix, um, you know, I could probably drop the weight lower, but I would be just asking for a, a really diabolical result. And, yeah. and I, I almost, all my shows are almost always, I've never really had anyone who traveled with me. So it's always sort of just me. Um, I mean, people know where I am, but um, so I don't usually have like a travel partner. I don't have a significant other, anyone to come with me. So I wouldn't try something like that for sure without someone to like yeah. force the Pedialyte down your throat and what have you. So, and I guess you do you have different methodologies. I don't know if you even do coach both, but um, for like natural guys versus enhanced guys, are they quite starkly different? Only because from my perspective, for naturals, it's quite a lot simpler. Like there's just not so many things to, the water weight is certainly not significant. Whereas I guess right. for enhanced, from what I've heard from enhanced, the enhanced side, it can be like, you could look a lot fat, you could be looking 15% body fat because you haven't got your water right, basically. Yeah, it, it depends on the, most of the people that I've worked with who are enhanced aren't, they're not in that scenario where they're, you know, they've got a shitload of water weight. Yeah. That's a lot of times that's, I mean, that can kind of indicate that there's, they're on too much stuff and using too many things and, and that they're stressed out a bit or, or they're using things at that point in time that cause water retention. And I, as the principle applies, the thing that I will have almost literally everyone do is you want to have some stability in terms of your supplements, your food and everything else that's happening before you start that practice run at least. So um, there are some things you want to, might want to keep using. Let's say some people hold a little bit of water with your him bean and that may be allowed or not allowed depending. So that's something you would maybe drop middle of the week so you can get out of your system. So you're removing agents of water retention, so to speak. But if you come into like the week before and like you've got something that's causing like 15 pounds of water retention, chances are that's probably something you, you wouldn't even want to be using for as far as fat loss goes if you're an enhanced guy because like some estrogenic or progestin like actions, progestogenic actions that are causing the water loss, water retention. And those aren't, those don't behoove you for, uh, for fat loss. So those would probably be gone if you're doing it smart. So I wouldn't run into that. Um, but basically, yeah, you just are, you're, it's all the same kind of principles. You're just removing the things that cause water retention, assuming that they're, you know, not something that's like, like, like a long acting sustenance or something like that. That would probably want to be out already. And then 
adding in things that you know will help with water loss, like caffeine, presuming okay. that's, that's allowed. Like um, clenbuterol will cause some, has a hardening effect that would cause some water loss. So obviously natural guys won't be using that. That's something that guys who have been using that for fat loss, if they do, would keep in. So, and that can be useful, but it's not absolutely necessary. So you can add, you can add caffeine to anybody and you don't have to have clenbuterol to get dry, obviously. Um, so, but yeah, you're right. There is, there is something to say for, and, and I've heard this said too, when they're kind of talk about the guys, the pros today versus the guys, of the nineties. And right. you know, some of that could be just the, the filters or lack of filters or the photography, the lighting. Um, but there, there does seem to be sort of a difference in the, there's a little bit of a watery film that you can see in some of these guys. And that could be just a function of toxicity. Right. Having just wow. too much stuff, yeah. you know? Um, and that's the nature. I mean, literally it's, it's funny because I, I don't know. I always, I think of these things in terms of, um, you know, you can look at them generationally and one generation sort of looks back and judges the other one. Like that's, I think that's been like the, the theme over the course of, humans evolution like it's like the old the old people say oh you're like well these ki young yeah. kids these days what are they doing and like back in my day you know we did twice the work and half the time yeah et cetera, et cetera. but i i think probably especially with bodybuilding bigger and and better is always the, the push and the drive and we've seen that happen with size yeah and, and it's sort of gone you know maybe too far people are like oh, it's like that's too much um but if you put the guys of the 90s in you know, let, let somehow figure out a way to have them being born 20 years later. I'm not speaking of anyone in particular, really I'm not, but they probably would, they would have grown up in, in a bodybuilding environment that's different. Yeah. And they probably would have been doing things differently because they just, you just learn from the people around you and you learn from, you know, the, the, the social atmosphere and the culture. So they probably, they probably would have, those 90s guys probably would, they would have been phenomenal and there's no doubt. And many of them probably would have had the same issues that they, they may have pointed out in guys nowadays having as far as water retention, not coming in shape because there'd, there'd be a different forte. So it is really interesting. It's always kind of, I guess it's a, a bit of a, a bias or a, uh, I don't know if it's hindsight bias or something along those lines. It's just kind of like, if you, people will say, oh, I knew they, this would happen or I, like, something along those lines, whereas we never know. It's just a case of, we test and we find out and try and improve in future. But yeah, it's always people always, I guess the, the years ahead of us always thought their way was the better way or, um, yeah. and things will always improve. Eventually we'll work things out and I think the problems will solve themselves, but yeah. <laughs> we I, have, I have this, this, this thought experiment that I, that I was just sort of think is kind of, kind of fun, fun to share. And I'll give you the short version, but imagine some future time, like you're, you're a future self, the time travel has been invented and cloning is, is very easy to do. So we've got sort of the ability to like sneak throughout time and, and manipulate things. So you decided, I wonder what would happen if I, how I would turn out if I grew up at different epochs of, over the course of human history. And so you, you make a clone of yourself and figure out how to go back to like the middle ages and prehistoric times and you know maybe this century two centuries ago different different cultures where you could mix in your skin color wouldn't give you what way it's like why is there this white guy when everyone else is black something like that and you just plop yourself you, you plop a fertilized zygote of yourself 
into um, a, a suitable mother in a way that obviously doesn't harm her or what have you. And then you let a version of you grow up all those different times. You know, one case, like literally you have no electricity, you have no running water, you know, you're speaking Gaelic, um, you know, things are totally different. And another case, like you're, 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 um, absolutely utterly wealthy. You don't have a care in the world. You've, you're chauffeured around everywhere. In another case, like you literally, you grow up on the streets and you have to scrape to survive and every day's a fight. You would be a totally different person. I would imagine the, the effect mm -hmm. of, of nurture, um, versus nature would be just tremendous based because of how you grew up. So when you think back and judge like this younger generation, like they're so lazy, it's like, no, they're just, they just grew up in the environment that we created for them yeah. in so many ways. So, you know, the bodybuilders today, I, I bring this back to the topic at hand. This is part of why I'm, you know, I, I feel uh, sort of an obligation, ethical drive to try to like spread the things that I think might be important is because, you know, I am part of the of the collective group of older bodybuilders who have created the present day for younger bodybuilders, and I want to want to make sure they can they can reap all the benefits that I have from this pursuit. So I talk about the things that I do because literally I'm I am if if there's an issue I am part of the creation of that issue because you know I've been around for a while so I'm part of the problem so to speak and I can be part of the solution. So anyway, I think that thought experiment just like if you sit and fast, that's just fascinating idea to imagine yeah. how, wow. And you go talk to yourself. Like you might find yourself in one situation just to be an evil bastard <laughs> who would hate, you know, that you'd know what you want to spend five minutes talking to, except for the curiosity of finding out how you turned out. But anyway, yeah. So you never know. It's hard. No. It, it makes it difficult to judge people when you really think about how different you could possibly be if you grew up in, in their shoes. Yeah. No, I I think putting yourself in other people's shoes and yeah, making sure to have that perspective is yeah, that's a good thing for sure. And um, to go on to maybe some Q and A, yeah, as that's yeah. definitely what we brought you on for. And we do have right. some really cool questions. And one I was sure. really interested to ask you about, and I guess this is something <laughs> you've been doing. I haven't actually seen it uh, myself, but um, Joe Jeffrey uh, asked. Well, he didn't actually ask. He just said. Hi, hope you're well. Um, and he was just asking about the artificial light blocking experiment, which, uh, yeah, really intrigued me because I'm into my sleep and I kind of have been doing some reading into that. So I'm really interested to hear what you've been doing with artificial light or not blocking it, I guess. Right. Yeah, it's funny. I just I, This is my fourth podcast this week, actually. So, and I just talked about this. Oh, wow. Uh, <laughs> like a couple of nights ago, but I have the glasses right here. These are the ones. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, and these were recommended to me by some people I know here in town. And they're, you know, I always sort of wonder about the technology. People obviously, sleep is huge. If someone's sleep deprived, they'll do just about anything to get out of that state. You know, they'll pay a lot. So um, Joe just found some glasses. He looked around and we, we, we correspond on Facebook about this. He looked around he, and he, uh, he tried, I think, a lot of different products. And finally, he found one that worked for him. And it, they were fairly priced. I can't remember the dollar amount 80 bucks or 100 bucks something like yeah. that and i'm thinking to myself well i mean it's really like now in, in today's day and age of technology is it really that tough just to create a film that will block certain wavelengths like this is not that big of a deal really so um i got like these were like eight bucks yeah and you got the bad but, looking ones <laughs> yeah <laughs> depending I mean, I how you like, think right like there's <laughs> no one checking me out here it's just me and the dogs don't care they haven't, they haven't they're not concerned about it at all 
Um, so I have one here that I'll, I'll put on like, you know, and, and then, um, just to have it there. As soon as I bring it back, I've got another one in the bedroom and I've got one in my suitcase just so I actually with my CPAC, my CPAC bag. So I'll take it with me when I travel. And I, when I put it on, I do notice a little bit, and it could be completely placebo, a little bit of a, a grogginess. At first I thought it's just a little bit harder to discern things. You know, when you get a little bit sleepy, you're like, oh, where's everything at? You kind of get somewhat disoriented. I'm like, maybe I'm just disoriented because the color, because the color contrast isn't so yeah. great. So for me, falling asleep isn't that big of a deal. Um, it's staying asleep. Okay. And I would actually, what I would do, I would, I had a, I have a pair in by my bed and when I, I've got it such that all, no lights come on and I've got, I mean, I've got to have to do some little more engineering if I want to completely block like moonlight or something like that. But I would put them on too when I got up and, the, and, and it made it a little more difficult to see where I was going, but I just feel my way around. It, I didn't, I didn't notice any difference in my ability to stay asleep. But some of this may be now, I mean, it, this has been going on for a while. I've never been a great sleeper, but some of it's maybe because I've just dieted down. Yeah. You know, right. and that's just you know, how it's going to be. So I know, I think I was recently talking to someone, I think the record number of times I woke up in a prep was six and I think I would pee every time. So, oh, that's <laughs> my just, average probably. Yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah. you're feeling that. Yeah. Yeah. Up, up and down all the time. And I've got, I've got an Apple watch. I've got an aura ring just to sort of get some feedback and just try to get as much data as I possibly can. And it, it, the aura ring seems like it may synchronize. It may be a little bit better associated with what I perceive the next day, yeah, but not entirely. And they, and at the Apple watch and the aura ring tend to give me disparate measures. The Apple watch only gives me a deep sleep. doesn't give me a REM. Uh, the aura gives a REM and deep sleep and, <laughs> Like, God, I have to, on my phones. I don't want to get my phones at the other part of the room, but the Apple Watch, the Aura told me my my heart rate was like 72 last night, something like that, which, you know, it's, it's totally fine. And the Apple Watch told me it was like in the 80s, I think. Okay. And I'm like, so we're, and the Apple, I have it on a little bit loose, so maybe that's part of it, but I've never trusted the Apple Watch as far as a heart rate. So, if I'm, and the technology isn't, I'm not totally privy to how, how it's gathering the data, but if it's not able to get an accurate heart rate, which my Apple watch never has been able to, that makes me wonder how well it's going to be able to get things like HRV, right. pick up on some of these other data. So I think the technology still in order to sort of match polysomnography, you know, and give you those sorts of, um, although even when I went in for my sleep study, uh, they told me I was, you know, asleep and dreaming for a good part of the night. And I had the perception of being up all night long. Oh, wow. So, you know, my, my subject, my subjective experience isn't necessarily the absolute truth. That's not ground zero as far as what actually happened either. So, so I don't know, but, um, so I got the aura ring to kind of like give me a little bit of, little bit of background and, um, I try not to check it. I sort of wake up and I check in with myself. There's a breathing app on the Apple watch just to sort of, um, so I do that sort of a meditative type thing, just a deep yeah. breath thing. Yeah. And I do that in the mornings when I wake up, but I've actually, my sleep's actually gotten better. I think I've got into a, quite a rhythm. One of the things that I recognize, I mentioned this on the other podcast was, um, you know, of course, sleep and trains are circadian rhythms yeah. or sort of light and trains are circadian rhythms so much. So I've started, uh, 
literally I put my watch in airplane mode and the phone gets plugged in and put, put face down and never goes in the bedroom with me. Um, you know, this is during the day in my pocket when I'm walking to the bedroom. But otherwise, I, I'm basically cutting off as much as I can technology-wise about seven. I'll talk to my mom on the phone most nights. But other than that, I get up pretty early. I get up, I got up today at like 5.30 or 6 when the sun's starting to come up. And and then, you know, I pretty much work, stay active all day long. And then when the sun's getting coming down, I, I try to, I shut it off. And that's help. that seems to be helping. Yeah. Because that cuts off the monkey mind it cuts off the chatter. Um, and yeah, even, and people aren't used to that. That's an unusual thing. It doesn't fit very well with a modern social life, which I don't have. So it's not a worry. There's like, I don't, there's no one who wants to call me late at night. Every once in a while I get text messages from people, but they can wait for the next day, you know, and they know this. I've told everyone who's close to me that, that I'm cutting things off around seven. And so they're like, Oh yeah, Scott's grandpa's gone to bed already. <laughs> so um, but that's, yeah, that's the, the best update. I'm still working on it. We'll see what happens when I, you know, cool. when I start adding more food in. Um, so I, I would, I'd hope it would improve at least from my personal experience from having woken up six times and it, that was in 2017 prep. I couldn't believe that this time in my off season, I've had nights where I've slept through the entire night. That's like unheard of for me. And I yeah. think it may be related to kind of maybe staying a bit too lean for myself in previous off seasons where my body just wasn't fully comfortable. I don't know if that was always like an underlying stress. I was never right. shredded in my off season, but I certainly was right. maybe closer to 10%, whereas now I'm letting it go higher to 15% and mm -hmm. just seemingly have, I'm able, like one time per night is the average now, whereas it always was like three, potentially more. So, and yeah. I've been I've been using the blue light blockers, I don't know, like maybe four years now, but I'd certainly notice the difference when I wear them or don't wear them. And I think it could okay. be placebo because there's not huge amounts of data, but the the kind of mechanisms behind blue light and what that does to oh, melatonin, yeah. it makes complete sense to why it would work. So what do you notice that, that uh, you put them on and then if, if you don't wear them, you have a hard time falling asleep or the whole night is affected? I don't, because I'm very rarely don't have them with me now. It's mm. so kind of, I, I just feel more alert when they're, they're not on. I can kind of, even when I like take them off okay. briefly if in the night, if I needed to, I just, I might be placebo again, but automatically that bright light just makes me feel more alert. But unfortunately I've not been good like you. I do wear them and kind of watch TV and it's kind of like, at least I'm kind uh, of counteracting the TV effect. <laughs> no, I, I think that's okay. So you, you wear them throughout the night, like when you're sleeping there on your head. Um, I have them like you by the side. So if I wake okay. up, I can put them on, but I wear a like eye mask that hopefully covers most light, stops gotcha. most light coming in. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, when I wake up and I, go, I, I just sort of get up and I, I don't, I don't have much trouble most of the time falling asleep between about two and four. Sometimes I have some issues. Um, that's kind of my trouble time, but I just wake up and I take care of my business. But that obviously is disruptive to sleep cycles, doing that so frequently. But it's not like I wake up. And like every time I'm just like, you know, getting upset because I can't sleep and then I get more upset because I can't sleep. I don't wonder that I just end up waking up quite a bit. So um, it, it, make, it makes sense. I think it's there's a anorexogen, I think is the, um, or orexogen is the name of a molecule that, that is produced when you're, when you're, when you're um, down in body weight or you're underfed hypocaloric and that right. has a stimulatory effect. Yeah. So 
on the brain. So it just, it makes sense that I'd be doing that. And sometimes I do wake up hungry too, I'm drinking a lot of water yeah. during the night. Yeah. That seems to help. So I have, but, but it's nice. I've created a, just sort of in line with my suggestions in my book. I've at least created a pattern like literally before night yeah. when it starts to get dark, I'll put the glasses on. I go and I, I get my water. I set my water up next to the bed. The water's there. I, I get up. I got to go pee. I go pee. I come back. I drink water. I lay back down. As, as far as I can tell, I'm asleep. And both of my sleep monitors tell me my sleep latency. Like it's telling me zero minutes. Oh, wow. Sometimes. <laughs> so I, I can't, I don't think that's accurate either. Just, it's like, no, I know. <laughs> like, like I don't like lying on the bed. And so, you know, how it actually knows when I'm, Trying to fall asleep, I, I don't know. Um, on the Apple Watch, the app has an option to, to lights out, I think is the name of the what the button says. You can tell it when you're trying to go to sleep, but even then, it'll it'll just tell me like one minute sleep latency. I'm like, eh, it takes longer than that, I think. But so, anyway, I'm interested. That, that's as far as I am so far. Yeah, the uh, with the Aura Ring, it's something I've looked at a few times. I've probably opened up the website to buy it like 10 times at least and every time I'm like should I or shouldn't I and I think there's there is some data like the studies using the aura ring to verify it's the accuracy is getting there but I think it's still in the position you said where it's not like there's not enough evidence to say that it's good enough to give us loads of good data and uh, I have a friend he's been on the podcast he actually lives in London as well uh, called Mm -hmm. Uh, Greg Potter, he has a PhD in sleep and he's really into this sort of thing. And uh-huh. I kind of, I asked him whether he thought I should get the aura ring. He was just like, I, I wouldn't yet. So um, yeah. it's it's certainly interesting though. And it's, it's, at least it's maybe something that is consistently, if it is a little bit inaccurate, at least it has some consistency there and is getting people to focus on the right things in terms of improving measurements. I'm, uh, I'm looking at the, there's the aura ring article. Um, Actually, that looks different than what I've seen. Yeah, they, there is one, as far as I know, one study that was put out that was pretty, uh, somewhat controversial. And I mean, there was some ag- statistical agreement there in terms of its ability to discern sleep cycles or sleep stages of sleep. But the problem, problem, and I can't remember the exact data, but I think the main issue was that um, what practical value do we have here? Yeah, it's cool. We got a right. ring and, and, you know, you can actually, to some degree, discern the sleep cycles the sleep stages that you see with polysomnography, but how valuable is that really for someone who's trying to do a better job of engineering their sleep? It doesn't have diagnostic capabilities at this point. It's not like you could send someone home with one of these things instead of having to bring them into the lab. Um, So yeah, it's sort of a toy and I sort of think of it as a tax write off. It's, you know, business. Yeah, I see that. (laughs) I've talked about it like four or five times on the podcast now. So it's, you know, there we go. (laughs) I've I've documented that it does indeed have something to do with what I do professionally. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. Um, So the next question, I don't know if you had a chance to look at it, was from Miroslav Katitnik. I probably pronounced his name terribly. Yeah. uh But it was referring to melatonin um, and supplementing with that in turn. And he kind of said on examine.com, there was some evidence to suggest it may interfere with muscle growth. I don't know if you've seen any of that or if you've had any experience of melatonin supplementation. I think it was, I don't know if I see said that they, they said that on examine.com, they mentioned muscle growth in particular, but um, he talked about exercise, induced oxidation, general oxidation and decreasing inflammation. So yeah, there's, we know of course that non-steroidal anti-inflammatories are sort of become pretty well known 
to um, reduce the responses to training um, and antioxidants as well. So like if you take a bl the blunt hammer, like a mega dose of vitamin C, 100 milligrams of vitamin C with 400 IUs of vitamin E, you can, you can put a, put the smack down, so to speak on the exercise adaptations. It just basic things like, like insulin sensitivity and mitochondrial biogenesis. So if you, if you blunt inflammation with an NSAID, you can prevent protein synthesis will go down. The satellite cell proliferation and differentiate those responses will be, will be um, reduced or blunted. So, the, that's the that is a possibility with melatonin. It's an interesting thing. I've never seen it studied directly, mm. and melatonin has an impact on the it it it, uh, it slows or um, counteracts the NL, NLRP3 inflammasome, which is just a, sort of a series of a um, caspases. It's an inflammatory cascade that's been well studied. So and and that would that is involved to some degree with exercise. It's also um, an anti uh, antioxidant in of itself, and the actually the same is true of alpha lipoic acid. So it kind of reminds me of that. It also has a regulatory effect on the body's own enzymes that are involved with free radical quenching. So, so there's there's a, a few things going on there. One of the things about the inflammasome is that it, it that inflammasome acts to be a NF kappa beta which is there's a little bit of data there. And I've looked at this because of curcumin having a potential effect on muscle growth sort of for the same, the same concern basically. Okay. And so like if you overexpress NF kappa beta, you'll induce atrophy. And if you, um, you can blunt hypertrophy if it's not fully expressed or it's, it's a pathways aren't fully expressed. So there's converging data from various sort of angles suggesting with the inflammation that something could be going on there. Um, as far as like activating the antioxidant response system or the antioxidant response element, um, the NRF2 pathway, which is the big one that people talk about mostly, um, which like a lot of polyphenols do and the things in fruits and vegetables that act as antioxidants, not vitamin C per se, but um, the, the uh, nutraceuticals, the botanicals, those sorts of things that have those impacts. That's not the, the biggest concern that I would have because basically what, what that does is, although those are acting as basically as, as mild toxins and they're turning on that antioxidant response system, um, they're interacting with the, with the cell's own enz enz enzymatic production, the cell's own defense system. So if you come in with vitamin C at 1,000 1, milligrams, that's just a powerful antioxidant. And it's just literally squashing things as opposed to going in sort of to the circuitry of the, of the cell and saying, hey, we need, to, we need to deal with incoming toxins and free radicals, which is one thing that melatonin does. But the other thing is that it does actually have direct antioxidant effects too. So putting all that together, there's no direct evidence that I know of. I haven't found anything, seen anything. But if you're like a lot of people are using like really high dose melatonin, like like ten milligrams. That's you can buy that okay. on Amazon. Yeah, to help them sleep and it works. It just it is kind of like a hammer to you know to turn on the uh, desire to sleep. But um, so that's a possibility. If someone like who I'd love to hear from anyone who's 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 using that and finds 
you know, the days, let's say, it's, oh, I'm going to have a troubled, hard time sleeping tonight. I'm going to take a big dose of melatonin. And then they finally do so that they don't get a sore the next day, that it's sort of having an anti-inflammatory effect. Yeah. That would be interesting. So possibly, but melatonin is produced in pineal gland. It's also produced throughout the body in other places. It's somewhat ubiquitous. So I don't, I don't know, but that's a good question. It's a concern. Um, in like, like kind of like practical, like in the trenches, you know, let's say you need to take five milligrams of melatonin to help you sleep and it just works awesome. And you sleep through the night. You feel that, I think that is probably worth it. Um, I would take that or, and sort of make it less of, a, of lesser importance that it might be quenching free radicals too much um, and therefore counteracting your muscle growth, especially because it's only one dose. And the thing with, um, there's a little bit of literature to support this idea is that if, if, you, ta- if you have those mega doses of, free, of antioxidants in your system, during the time when you're producing free radicals, like the superoxide radical that would be turning on these adaptive responses in the cell, <clears throat> well, then you're, you're basically, you're cutting the signal short. But if you time your, your, uh, super, your antioxidant supplementation away from your workouts, so let's say you train in the morning, you take your antioxidants at night for the health benefits that you perceive they may have, um, then you may be okay. So, especially for someone who's training in the morning, if they're using melatonin at night, probably not a problem at all. Um, unless they're taking like a long acting, you know, time release formula at like five in the morning and they go and train at eight. Um, e- even then, the sleep benefits are just so important. That's, I would weigh those, put, give those priority over any possible sort of counteracting effect that the free radical quenching ability of melatonin might have. So, awesome. I guess, no. yeah. I think you answered, I mean, it was an unanswerable question, to be quite honest, because there is no direct <laughs> evidence, as you said, but you'd certainly Maybe gave. I don't know. I don't know of it, so. Uh, yeah, I, I read it wrongly. I kind of read, he kind of inferred from what he had read to ask it in a certain way, and I thought that meant there was direct evidence, but I don't think there is direct evidence. I'm sure we'd have kind of heard about it a little bit more than we had, and my thoughts were the same as what you said in terms of, like, sleep is such an important thing. Mm. It's if something's supporting that in a really good way, it's probably bolstering kind of muscle growth more than the downsides of what it might be doing if we yeah. if it even is. And the uh, the other thing that's important too in the in the context of this for people to kind of know is and I on one of the podcasts I've done recently, I can't remember which one, we talked about this one too, is that we're talking about a hormetic stimulus here. There's a hormetic hormesis is involved with this with this stress, meaning there's sort of an inverse U response in terms of the adaptation versus the the stress so if you train and let's say you just go to break it down and you just do like you know one set of eight reps and you leave two in the tank there's a little bit of stress there but you're probably not going to turn on much of an adaptation like that's that's all that like you do that once a week you're not gonna get much out of that now you go and you start doing you know german volume training on a daily basis seven days a week that's at the other end of the stress and you're going to, you, now you've gone way past optimizing the stress to turn on the adaptation and, and make gains in muscle mass. That's your goal. And you're doing, doing too much. So knowing where that optimal place is, is a matter of auto-regulation and knowing yourself and sometimes doing things that your ego doesn't want to do like training less in many cases. 
or for a lot of people would be training more, but not probably as many of the listeners here. Most people probably should be better off training less. I would guess. I'm not sure, but um, so it could be, you know, literally if someone is maybe someone who's using melatonin to help them sleep is maybe pushing, maybe they're overreaching a little bit. Like difficulty sleeping is a, is a symptom of overtraining. And I know I've done that. I've pushed way too hard to the point where I'm, you know, I think it's interfering with my sleep and I'm feeling kind of run down and tired all day long, but you still can't sleep at night. Like that's a pretty common thing for bodybuilders who are pushing the limits. So something like melatonin then that helps you sleep and that also has an anti-inflammatory and an antioxidant action and reverses the inflammation and quenches free radical stress and moves you from being too far along that inverse U relationship in terms of stress versus adaptation. It may, may push you from the, the wrong end of that inverse U more towards the optimal end. So it could actually be a good thing for people. And I, and I give the example of, um, which I thought was a really cool when I sort of, um, sort of figured out what, what was actually kind of going on there. The buddy of mine, guy knew years ago who was a power lifter and, uh, I used to just, you know, train like friggin' maniacs and they would go in like when they had a chance, um, uh, for some of the weeks before a big meet and they go in like on a Sunday to the garage gym and crank the metal and just go fucking bonkers for like five hours. Just go barbarian on the, on the weights and do tons of triples and doubles and singles way more than what, you know, they would normally ever try to do in a workout, but they would load up on a, like a handful of aspirin before that. It probably wasn't the best thing for their gut, but they knew that they, that they would be just so sore. They would be incapacitated the next day if they didn't do that. So, they are able to go in and do a ton of practice with heavy loads and really get used to feeling that heavy load and then sort of fatigue themselves down, but still come back and do, you know, doubles and triples and train their nervous system, which is limitation probably in many cases with powerlifters without destroying their muscular system because they took all those anti, all the anti-inflammatories, the aspirin. So for them, they basically, they would, as far as muscle adaptation, they were way, way to the wrong side in terms of stimulus and adaptation. But they, but they used the aspirin to blunt the inflammation and bring themselves back to where, you know, at least they weren't just totally digging themselves into an overtraining hole with that one workout. So it could be on a smaller, for some people, unknowingly on a smaller scale, like the, having an anti-inflammatory like melatonin in, in their in their in their uh, supplement regime that helps them sleep and brings their stress in terms of inflammation and free radical stress back towards an optimal um, sort of point is a good thing. It could be the best thing ever, you know, for that person. So um, that's why it can be so helpful to if you want to figure out if if something is working, keep everything else the same, and then just take that one thing out you know, remove it, eliminate it, and then add it back in, or maybe add it back in at double the dose and see what happens. So like, if he's concerned about that. Let's say he takes a milligram, um, which still is a pretty high amount given how much the pineal gland produces. But um, so he's like, ah, I mean, maybe this is, so I'm going to, I'm going to try this. I'm going to, I'm going to train the, tomorrow. I'm not going to worry about being groggy. You have to worry about it. It's a good day for the experiment. I'm going to take 10 milligrams, which they sell on Amazon. So it's not like, I don't think there's any health issues with taking 10 milligrams of melatonin as far as I know. 
And he could, he could figure out, I was like, you know, I think I'm going to get pretty sore from this workout. And I took that and I woke up and I didn't feel anything. He may have like, well, okay, that was definitely during an anti-inflammatory, anti-soreness effect for me. So he could, he can do that as long as everything else is the same. So. Very interesting. Yeah. Especially the, the anecdote of the powerlifters doing that. I just would never have thought to, for someone to do that. It just sounds so like, uh, and like against what you'd ex- think someone to do, but very yeah, interesting. Pa- Powerlifters, I mean, I, I, I've known a few over the years, and I, I got to interact with just a very small with some of the guys from Elite FTS, like some of the old veterans when I was up there and gave a couple talks. And uh, those guys are cool as hell. I fucking love power. I love the mentality. And they just like, they have like a go for broke uh, because they don't, like, it's, it's sort of like if you take the, the, the go for it mentality that you see in some bodybuilders, um, but without the, the self esteem connection like i have to look good they just want to be just big and fucking strong and just fucking brutal in many cases and i'm not trying to like you know stereotype too much but I, this is a very this is a compliment and they so they'll just take whatever they possibly can if they have to like you probably saw the video with with john and dave tate and they had the um right. cattle prod i mean that's the kind of that's a body that's a powerlifting mentality yeah. You know, go, fucking go. We don't care what it takes. Hit you with a tire iron, a cattle prod, you know, whatever. So it, 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 that actually fits into the mentality of a lot of powerlifters. It's like, hell, you know, we're going to go in and we're going to kick ass. And so that I'm not like a broken heap of bones the next day, 15 aspirin, that's the standard <laughs> dose, you know, or whatever. So, yeah, it's a cool anecdote. So I like to tell it. Awesome. Um if you're okay, we'll get to the next question, which yeah. is from Marvin Ferguson. And he said, Dr. Stevenson, with everything always, with everyone always searching for what is op- most optimal, what would be your big rocks or core principles or core basics to pass on to lifters? That's an awesome question. Um, I just kind of wrote down the things that hit my head in like the first like three seconds. Perfect. Um, I, I, the, I had a different order, but I think the first one probably needs to be goals. Like where, where are you going? Like, what are you trying to do? So many, so much, especially in bodybuilding, so much of it, it really is when it comes down to it, it's, I mean, we're creatures of immediate gratification. We want to look and feel a certain way. And we sort of have like this somewhat nebulous concept of what that would be. And you like, you, you watch, you can watch hours and hours of videos um, you know, of the pros of these guys that just the physiques are ridiculous and the strength's amazing. And, you know, if you ask anyone who's done that, who grew up like becoming sort of a fan of bodybuilding, reading the magazines or watching the videos or what have you, they would love to look like those pros. But the thing is, you're going to know if you're going to look like a pro in the first year, you know, it's going to, you're going to, you're going to distance yourself from your peers very, very rapidly. Um, like an example that popped in my head because he came up the other day in conversation is like a guy named Brad Castleberry, who's, who's criticized for various reasons, but, um, Dante Trudell lives in the same area as Brad. And he used to, he used to talk, but he used to see that like, there's obviously Brad has some legitimate strength and athleticism, regardless of whether he's used fake weights and that whole thing. But he would, Dante would see him training and he would be training with a group of guys who they all started training at the same time. And there was Brad you know, with five plates on the bar and the bench press and all the other guys are using 185. They're using like a plate and a half, you know, and he just, he just outdistanced them. And it wasn't like, 
it wasn't as if Brad was the evil scientist of, you know, optimizing his training and nutrition and everything else. It's just Brad was just incredibly genetically gifted. Mm. So people, you'll know really, really quickly whether you have that or not. So that's like one extreme example where people can sort of literally be lost, I think, for years, sort of chasing after this sort of nebulous place of, of feeling and looking like a certain way, but they don't actually haven't pinned that down as to what that means. Like what is, what is the, what are their actual goals in terms of weight gain, in terms of strength, in terms of a look. And I've done this, this is what I always do with clients. Um, sometimes it's like a certain level of, of competitive, uh, competitive aspiration. So for me, for me, for the longest time, it was placing top 10 in a, in a, in a, a pro qualifier. So a national level show in the States. Um, because I knew, and this was, you know, based on, this was a goal that it was set like 20 years ago. And I knew what that meant in men's open bodybuilding. This was before the other divisions really even were around, but I knew what physique level that would be. And I knew where I needed to go to, to get to that. So that was pretty concrete. Um, and it gave me a, an endpoint. You know, if I, if I go and do the junior nationals, the junior SAs, what have you, and I place top six, then obviously I've made that. Um, but some people don't, or maybe they just want to win their state show. They know what that means. Or maybe they want to look like so-and-so. And I had a, I had a client once who wanted to look like Frank Zane. And he did, there was a picture of Frank Zane, which you can probably find if you Google, of Frank kind of like just standing with his leg. He's wearing jeans. He's got his hands in his pockets, kind of like leaning against the wall. And he's in contest shape. It was just from a photo shoot. And he's like, that's how I want to look. Cause it's kind of like, that's like, that's projects to look like out in public. And I like that you have your shirt off, but you could tell he looked great. So that was actually what we did. That was what we did at the end of the, of um, sort of our target time. We set a goal to get in shape for a photo shoot and he replicated that photo. Cool. And it was very cool. Like, like this is the same position and like the, the leanness was the same and the physique was really, really similar. It was Frank Zane, like 170 pounds would have, this guy was taller, but, he achieved that and he had that in his mind's eye the entire time knowing where he wanted to go with that. So I, I don't know. I didn't ask him this directly, but I imagine he probably, you know, everyone wakes up in the morning. You like, you know, look to see if you're dieting down like, Oh, is there got anything new coming in your vein wise or definition wise, or if you're getting bigger, you get on the scale, you look in the mirror. He probably was hitting that pose at least with some regularity just to see how close he's coming to that ideal he had in his mind's eye. So yeah, creating a goal, creating an aspiration. Um, and I mean, it could be, it could also be like a body fat percentage. You can do one of the things I have in, in my Be Your Own Bodybuilding Coach book is, is I set out a way if someone has access to a DEXA and they can do that periodically, it's kind of pricey to do on a regular basis, but you can use the DEXA and your own skin fold measurements at sites that you can measure reliably, easily on you know, a regular basis. And you can create a regression equation the total of my three skin folds um, on this date gave me 14 percent and when i totaled all three on this date it was 10 percent and all three on this date it was six percent and you can literally create a line of best fits so you can have some idea i want to get down to five percent on dexa which is really pretty friggin lean so you can know it's like okay you can even i mean you can go even go so far as to say okay here's we are here i'm at 14 percent on this particular time this day and that puts me at, um, you can do the math, it puts me at 182 pounds of fat-free mass, whatever it may be. 
And so if I hold on to all that fat pre-mass and lose the fat that I need to get down to 5%, this is what my body weight would be. So you can actually track those things too. So when you get down to 7%, um, and if anyone has a question on how to do this math, it's, it's not that tough to do. It's basic math. It depends on how mathematically inclined you are. But you can know. It's like, you know what? Here I am at, I'm at 197, and I'm 7%. And in order to get to 5%, um, let's say I lose a pound of fat-free mass, I'm going to have to get down to like 192. So I got five pounds to go. And then they go in and maybe get another DEXA done. And then, so like, so then they know where that is and they know what that, that, that leanness is. They know what the skin folds are. The skin fold total is 15 at the three sites they've measured. That could be then what they use in the future. Like I want to be able to, every year when I diet down in the summer, a lot of guys do this. They just, the winter's for bulking, summer's for dieting down. <clears throat> I need to get my skin folds down to at least 20, which puts me, you know, fairly close to that, put maybe 7%. That would be their, their annual goal. That's what they're going to do. So January comes around, okay, my skin folds to 35. I got to drop 15 millimeters on my skin fold total, and they do that. So the, it gives you, um, for some people, hopefully it doesn't like pull all the fun out of it. The goals should be chosen by the person so that, so that they're internally motivated. I want to look like Frank Zane. Like, guy really, he, he did a great job with that. That was awesome for him. If someone likes the math, they like the numbers, it's like, okay, we got to keep going here. I'm going to have to lose, you know, I'm going to have to increase my caloric expenditure by this much each day. So I'm going to have to start doing this, that, and the other in order to get this last four or five pounds of fat to, to, to be lost. If I want to make, if I want to be a national level guy, I'm five foot nine, I'm going to have to be a heavyweight. And with my structure and shape, I'm going to have to come in at the top of the heavyweight. So I'm going to have to be 220 on stage at 4%. That means assuming I lose, and I have a big chart actually in my book for someone to do this, assuming I lose five pounds when I diet down of fat-free mass, I'm going to have to have, you know, 210, I'm just, don't, these numbers aren't exactly correct, but I'm going to have to have 210 pounds of fat-free mass or 215 pounds of fat-free mass at the peak of my off-season. So peak of my off-season, you know, four months out, means I'm going to have to get my body weight um, to where I have 220 pounds of fat free mass and I'm going to keep it below 15%. So I'm going to have to get to 250, something like that. You can do the math. Like, okay, I mean, if, if I'm going to get to where I want to be on stage and there are no big surprises when I diet down, you can do the body comp measurements and get a rough idea. 250 at 15% is going to get me down to where I need to be to be at the weight with the, with the, with the body fat percentage in order to be competitive at the level that I've chosen as my goal. And so once you lay it all out, then the path is there. It's like, yeah. okay, you just drawn a map. Your GPS is just set, you know, and you'll you obviously you'll make a wrong turn here and there and you know, shit happens. But those goals are just like absolutely. And a good coach can help people. If you don't want to like stick to them, a good coach can like, you know, think, Nope, make a left turn here. They can be like the, you know, the, the annoying voice on your, on your GPS that does you were to make your turns. Um, or you can just do it yourself. Some people like to be their own coach, which is why, you know, put my book together the way I did. So goals is goals is, you know, the number one, I think it's kind of almost, it's the umbrella over everything. Mm -hmm. um, the other one was progressive overload that came right into my head some way, shape or form. So 
you know, we know there's, there's literature suggesting that those who make the most strength gains will make the most gains in fat-free mass. It's un unusually, it's, it's kind of oddly not something that you see um, studied directly so much. It's sort of like among bodybuilders and among, I mean, progressive overload is like a basic tenet of sports mm. science. It's like, the, it's like the first principle of, of sports science, basically. Um, but that needs to be there. So if, if you want to build a thicker back and rack deads are a great exercise for you to do that, you've seen that those work for you and you're doing rack deads for four or five for a set of 10. And, you know, two years later, you're doing a set of rack deads for four or five for a set of 11. You, I wouldn't expect much to be going on if that's your meat and potatoes exercise that needs to go up some way, shape or form. Um, sometimes you may have to work around things. Maybe like you'd have to go higher reps. Higher reps rack deads are just friggin' brutal and they could build a hell of a back too. But, and I haven't seen this. I actually, we had a podcast where I asked Brad Schoenfeld if he knew of these data because I've looked. But we, we know the, the lower intensity, higher rep sets will produce muscle, at least in the short term, muscle growth as well as heavier yeah. stuff. N numerous studies have been done to that, that uh, effect. What I haven't seen anyone do is because they're monitoring and they're progressing over the course, that's a standard feature of these training regimes is that they, when they are able to get X number of reps, they move the weight up, et cetera, et cetera. They're closely monitored. I haven't seen anyone publish at least correlations between changes in performance on, especially I'm thinking of those low in, the low, uh, the low intensity, the higher rep sets and changes in muscle size. I would imagine the guy who, you know, if you go back and test them with their starting weight, who can, you know, starts being able to do 20 reps is now to do 40 reps is going to be, it's going to get more muscle growth than the guy who's only goes from 20 reps to 30 reps mm. or the person who increases their weight by 50% for the 20 to 30 rep range versus 25%. I would imagine that, that form is going to follow function there because it seems to in the, in the strength world. Um, but I don't know, but I think that that probably applies that logic would tell me this. So progressive overload, you have to become just sort of some kind of a, a, a bigger and better monster in the gym than what you once were. If you want to look like a bigger and better monster on the bodybuilding stage, so to speak. So I think progressive overload needs to be there. And so many people just, uh, it's a tough thing to do. It's like, it, it, it feels like discipline and yeah. it is. And like one thing, I mean, like I've got like in my fortitude training system, I've got loading sets, which are very sort of strictly progressive overload oriented. The muscle rounds, you want to progress on those, but that's not end all be all to do so. Ideally you do, but you can do muscle rounds and, and literally I've even, I've even, it's, I think it's in the book. Like you could, if like you're doing some sort of like, um, like even a leg press, you could, do a, you could do muscle rounds where you, each set of four, you change your foot position a little bit in order to move the stress around. A little more ham, a little more posterior chain with your feet higher up, a little more quads with feet lower and closer together. You could actually do that within a muscle round. And if you're doing that, there's really no point in, in if you're just sort of fapping in the wind, so to speak, if you're trying to log that because your performance is going to vary depending on, you know, how you're doing the exercise. And the pump sets are just for fun and just to go bonkers and just to be the idiot we like to be in the gym. So there's fun there. So that's like one solution to having progressive overload. You've got those, 
those loading sets where it's do or die. You want to, your form needs to be on, you're hitting the muscle that you're trying to target, et cetera, et cetera, but you're trying to get another rep or higher weight somewhere across the series of sets that you're doing for each of those muscle groups. So that overall, you're moving forward, you're progressively overloading. But you can do, like the thing I did for many years back in the day was, even bef like before DC training, is I would have <laughs> like go-to exercises. It's kind of like what led me actually to end up doing what was almost DC training when I found DC training. And I'd have like three for each major muscle group. They're like my test exercises. And I would, most days I would go in, I'd get warmed up, and I would test myself for an all-out set on whatever it may be, bent over rows. Like, okay, I'm going to see, you know, I'm keeping this in the 8 to 12 range. How, you know, how much can I lift in that range? And then the next time I come in, I'd like do a seated row or I'd do some other exercise for lats each time I would train, train back. And, and it wasn't always, like, in the strict order. It was like, you know, today I feel like I can kick some major ass on bent over rows. It's just feeling like a bent over row kind of day. So I would go in and I, was, and I look back into my logbook and say, ah, okay, I got 315 for eight. I think I can get 12 today. I'm just feeling it. So I would go and I would try to annihilate that previous gym PR. And you can do that. And then, and then the rest of the workout was just gravy. Um, but that kept me that was like a little marker, like ah, I'm progressing. And it's not like, you know, you're a slave to the logbook and you're constantly writing everything down. It's somewhat fun, actually, to take that approach. You're just looking and saying, you know what I want to feel? Who, whose ass wants to get whooped today? Is it going to be the bent of a row? Is it going to be the seated row? Is it going to be the cable row? Is it going to be the incline Smith press or whatever it might be? And you go in and you, and you, you, you have an ass whooping session to see if you're progressing properly. And if you, and if you fail to kick those exercises but you fail to beat the logbook enough times in a row, well, then something needs to change. And that actually, I segue to my own, my own next major topic, the top <laughs> is the auto-regulation. Nice. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's the thing, like so many, um, I still, there's, a, there's a, a, a kind of a black and white mindset. And, and I think like deep to this somewhere is that, for some people, especially because bodybuilders have body image difficulties, it's like this is so important to us that we don't want to face – you never want to make a mistake when it's something's important. I mean, if, if, if you're going to go give a speech at a wedding for your, your best friend, you're not good at giving speeches, you get very nervous because you don't want to say the wrong thing. It's really important. If you were just talking and you didn't care about anyone or – and then you, like, you wouldn't make you nervous in the least. So a lot of times people want to just like, give me a black and white number, get black and white answer. Give me a program that I can follow X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. And I don't have to do um, any of the thinking and the guidance on my own. That's why many people will hire on coaches because I don't want to make a mistake. Cause I will just be, I'll be so pissed off at myself if I make a mistake. And then the frustration can lead you down into a, a bad tailspin. But I, I think there's so much to auto-regulating. Um, and the thing that's sort of hidden from a lot of people, I think, is the fact that <laughs> it becomes pretty gratifying and cool and fun to pilot your own ship and to auto-regulate when you start figuring out how to kind of do it. And figure out, you know what, I, you know, I, I should probably pay attention to the fact that I'm, you know, I'm, I have to take 10 milligrams of melatonin to fall right. asleep and I'm not dieting. 
you know, there's no other explanation. I'm just training really hard and I'm looking at my logbook and I'm not beating those numbers, but damn it, I'm going to beat it next time. It's like, no, you haven't for the last six weeks. It's time for a deload. And when you, I mean, and, and trust me, it, I mean, I, I spent, I spent probably a decade doing kind of a bro split high volume thing, just beating myself to crap. Like I did 20 sets of 20 squats was something I tried once. Oof. I mean, literally, I'm not kidding, like 20 sets of 20 squats. I mean, I was doing it in the mornings, like at five in the morning, because it was taking me so long. <laughs> I had to do it before everything else. And there was, of course, you know, I, I, I don't know what I did afterwards, but I remember like going, I remember going back and like, like taking a shower and lying back down on my bed and my heart rate was still like, you know, 120, just from the massive, you know, sympathetic stress that had gone on the epoch so fucking high. So I've, I've done, you know, all those sorts of things and that doesn't, um, but when you figure out that you can make better progress, it's like, Oh wow. I actually, I've got a little more control here. I can pay attention to these pretty obvious signs and symptoms and auto regulate and deload at these times. It, it makes, it makes it a little more fun. Like it looks like you, you, you get to, you're unraveling some of the mysteries of your own body in a way that for a lot of people can be really gratifying especially because you can make better progress that way too. So I, and a good programs, obviously that's built in a fortitude training. John Meadows has that built into his program, some, some variations, some changes. It's tough too. Like if you've got to train, some people's uh, recovery abilities are highly different. So you may have a training partner who can just like, who's just a workhorse. Um, women tend to be, the research suggests this, women tend to be really, really hardy in terms of their recovery abilities and especially if you're training legs with them because they'll be just about as strong at least on a pound for pound basis if not just stronger than many guys and they'll just you know they'll beat your ego to a pulp if you don't learn how to how to pull things back and um and i've, I've actually done that i've gone i've traveled um and this isn't even too far too long ago and i've traveled on trips to, and trained with people that i really like i just want to like enjoy this whole whole um this the fact that I'm at this cool gym and I'm training with this person and I do end up doing too much and giving myself like major minor tears and minor injuries. Yeah. Then sometimes I didn't, I never, I usually don't recognize my injuries when I'm training probably 95% of the time. I have no idea I've done anything. I figured out the next day or later on that day. But, but that was because I deviated from what I knew was best Yeah. if I were training on my own. So so auto-regulation and its various forms, like having a, ha even having like some sort of a check um, on yourself that you, you have to almost force upon yourself, like um, resting heart rate, heart rate variability can, you know, is, is hopefully will kind of unravel how well that can, that can work in terms of being a backup way of, of uh, auto-regulating and getting a sense of how your system is responding to the stresses imposed upon it. I have a perceived recovery status scale. So it's basically a zero to 10 scale. It's kind of like an RPE scale with yeah. verbal anchors that I've been giving to clients now for a few years. It's in my book as well. And it's just like a check-in, like how recovered do you feel in it? And literally it's nice because as long as you be honest and and of course, I'm not judgmental at all with my clients. I, we need to be honest because what, the honesty is what's going to help most with progress. If your PRS is like at five, then you're, which means chances are you're not recovering. You're, that's pretty bad. And 
Um, and, and of course, maybe you go, maybe first you start off doing, using that scale and just saying, okay, so I'm going to just give an honest answer. I'm not going to apply that information in any way, shape or form. I'm going to just see how well my PRS scale measurement zero to 10, um, tracks with how I'm able to perform in the gym. And maybe you find as you track along, it's like, well, I'm pretty much making progress on everything until my PRS gets to seven. And when it's six or five, nothing's going up and most things are kind of going down or getting shitty or I'm getting little niggles and aches and pains and my sleep goes to shit. Well, then you can kind of know it's like, huh, all right, well, let's just be smart about this. Be proactive. And when my PRS gets to seven, I got about a week at seven before I'm, all things are going to go to hell. Maybe I stop and I do a deload and I give myself whatever my deload may be. It may be like uh, an intensive cruise like I do in, in uh, fortitude training reduced volume, reduced frequency, and with a little bit of downtime thereafter, and you come back with an overreach phenomenon, as long as you stick to that seven on the PRS scale, you go too far, and then you then, then becomes a non-functional overreaching phenomenon. So you just, you don't get much out of it. You just basically dug a hole and you stayed in it, and then you have to climb back out on your next training cycle. So those sorts of things can be employed like HRV. If, if you want to use that for yourself, you, I think people can do that. They can hack it for their own biology, <laughs> a PRS scale, the training book, um, just how you feel when you get up in the morning. If it's, you know, it takes you five seconds just to stand up, then, you know, maybe you start, sort of think about taking a little bit of a break. All those sorts of things can be used to auto-regulate, sort of impose it upon yourself and, you know, connect with that sort of intuition. It's like, you know what, I probably shouldn't try to do, you know, a PR six to eight rep squat today with the barbell. It's just not a good day. So anyway, so auto-regulation, that would be my kind of my third, what do you call it, a big rock to pass on. So progressive overload, goals first and foremost, progressive overload, but progressive overload and auto-regulation are kind of have to those are kind of literally kind of two sides of the same coin. You, you, you have to auto-regulate your progressive overload. Otherwise, the progressive overload is, isn't getting you somewhere. It's actually pushing you away from where you want to eventually go. So. I think that was, that was really valuable uh, in terms of like just knowing. I think a lot of people, like you said, they don't set that goal. And without that, then you can't have the, the map of how to get there. And the auto-regulation in many ways is kind of how to navigate that kind of you've drawn out the map now to that goal now or to regulate through it with the idea of progressively overloading through it. So I think if people can do that, which a lot of people don't have the, I don't know if they're listening to this, they probably would have the the kind of will to do that. But um, yeah. a lot of the kind of, a lot of people don't have that. And that's why a coach can help a lot because then they end up doing that for you. But like you said, you can set that up for yourself. And if you're honest, which uh, unfortunately I think a lot of us aren't in many ways and we end up kind of digging that hole too deep. But if you learn from that at least, and then you continue to be honest, I think that can be like, that's, that's bodybuilding at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, you know, there's one thing too. I mean, sometimes in being honest, you want to set those goals that you are driven intrinsically motivated to go after the ones you really like. And sometimes Sometimes training is just therapy. I mean, some, sometimes literally, I mean, I've had people that, that their goal is I want to have, I want to be able to string together, you know, 95% of my workouts where I go in there and I get after it and I feel great and I get kind of a nice therapeutic, anxiolytic, relaxing, great start to my day type of feeling when I'm coming out of the gym. 
And that might be more important. Like that might be more important than the actual goal. It's like, you know, like actually it was funny. Um, on uh, the Think Big Network, Think Big Network, which is where my Muscle Minds podcast is, and the it's just bodybuilding with Ron Partlow and Dusty Hanshaw. They just had Jordan Peters on. Just literally came out yesterday, I think. And uh, a cool question that was asked, and I knew a little bit about this, was um, if I can't remember exactly how it was phrased, but the, the basically it was asking Jordan about his, you know, how hard he pushes, and what Jordan does is one extreme of he's doing exactly what he is highly motivated and driven to do. He's doing what he needs and wants to do. So the motivation is infinite for him. He's on, he's an unstoppable force in that, in that regard, because he just wants it so fucking bad. And he's, he's ever, the question was asking if it was Ron or Dusty, but has it ever backfired? And you could tell he thought about it and what, what, what had happened. You maybe know this story, like Sasan Harati was training with Jordan for a while and they, Sasan had never, had never, and I talked to Sasan a little bit. I was over, been over there to UK with him and Chad. He's phenomenal. I love the guy. He's a great, great, great person. Um, he would just like, just great genetics. He could just go in the gym and just sort of like do a nice pump workout and, and do an enjoyable workout that was, was training hard, but it wasn't training in that sort of regimented, we're going to like, you know, push the absolute limits of your physiology way that, that Jordan was training him. So when they started doing that, it was, they definitely upped the ante on the training stimulus and sauces, um, his genetics just like said, okay, we're going with this. And he just started like blow, blowing up like none other. And it was just amazing and really, really cool. And of course, Jordan loved that. And Sasan, of course, liked that as well. But for him, it took the joy out of the training right it sucked it, it sucked it, it sucked his passion from bodybuilding that wasn't that wasn't what he wanted to do with bodybuilding it, it just wasn't it was it would be like like if you're if some people's like their 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 form of like sort of meditative exercise is is going for a walk um or like you know climbing a mountain and it's vigorous but you have to kind of get into this like kind of this zone and flow of like moving through the rocks and like you know, you can smell all the sense of nature and the wind is there and the sun and the sky and it's, it's wonderful. And you say, well, you know, now we're going to do interval training down here on the track and you're still going to get your elevate, heart elevated. And you're still going to have increased respiration. And you're going to sweat and physiologically it's going to be pretty similar, but it's going to be harder. That would just suck for that person. You're mm -hmm. just making me do like, you know, hundred yard sprints with hundred yard walks and yard, that would just be awful. So that's kind of what happened to sauce, I think. And eventually, I guess one day, from what Jordan said in the podcast, he just, they were getting ready to have another workout. And Sasan said, I just can't do it. I just don't want to do this anymore. And he had to take several months off. Oh, wow. Just to get past. Like, he was just totally psychologically wow. burnt out. <clears throat> so, ideally, you know, you find those goals that are, that are realistic, that are honest. So, like, if your goal is to be the biggest, most massive, impressive bodybuilder ever, then... Yeah, you do have a you have a challenge there in, in being honest with yourself and auto regulating. Um, but you know, on the other hand, you might have someone who just really like they get off on just training really really hard and just going and like this. You know, I'd rather be two hundred five. There was a guy. I remember, it just reminded me of this. There's a guy in town. I haven't seen him for the longest time. He used to train in one of the gyms that I, I would go to. It's now closed. And guy was an animal. I usually would see him training legs, just doing high volume leg stuff. We obviously had been a competitor in the past, 
um, and probably was maybe maybe at that time I didn't really follow Tim DeFerro exactly who he was, but um, guy just like he loved to be just a beast in the gym, and I could just tell and look like I looked at everything he did and how hard he trained. He reminded me of myself. It's like, dude, you're doing way too much. If you just cut that workout in thirds, as hard as you train. I mean, you probably have to add some more food, but you would just grow like crazy. But I have the feeling that for him, and maybe he may have been a little twisted in the head. It probably was because I know I am, and it reminded me of myself. But, like, he just loved to train that way. And he looked really good. I mean, he was really lean. I mean, he looked – and this was in a gym with a lot of competitors. He was definitely – you know, you would notice him in any setting because of how he looked, but he could have looked ridiculous – but I think maybe for him, you know, that wouldn't have been as much fun. He, he mm. literally got to sort of feel his oats, you know, and connect with, you know, some inner part of him, the warrior that needed expression in the gym. And if you took that away from him and said, no, like, you know, now you need to stop, he would have been like, I, I want to fucking go. I want to, like, it's time to, you know, destroy, destroy, destroy. I want to go after this. So, you know, if your goal is that, then be honest with that and figure out a way to do that as well as you can. And maybe the auto regulation has to come in there. But so that's the thing is that um, honesty with those goals then then allows all the other pieces to kind of come together, I think. And it may not manifest in being the best bodybuilder ever. It may be manifesting in getting the most out of bodybuilding that you possibly can for what you want from the endeavor. So... And actually, this is, I'm going to throw this at you, Scott, but you can turn it down as this was okay. a question that came up, but I didn't throw it into the mix. I didn't know if it would come in, uh, but it's kind of come in. Um, so we can always edit this out if you're not kind of wanting to go down this route. Um, right. but someone did ask about, obviously, I don't know if you saw that JP trialed RAR for a period of time. Oh, he was right. yeah. leaving some Ritson Reserve. So completely different, to, well, not completely, but it's kind of different mindset and going in there and training with maybe some more sets. Um, I don't know if you saw him doing this or had any chats with him or have any thoughts on kind of him doing that. And obviously he's, I think he's reverted back to his usual style. And I wonder if it just made me think of it, as you said, kind of be honest with yourself, if this just not isn't for you, even if maybe it's kind of a way that would work very well for you, like go with what you're going to actually be able to continue doing and kind of progress with. 